0: to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Raziel, and this is a show where I can talk about sports, I can talk about business, and I get to talk about everything in between. Today, my incredible guest, I have Dr. Freddie Starr of Minerva. He's a clinical neuroscientist with the specialty in brain imaging and psychiatry. He's also a surf and downhill ski aficionado, as well as kite surfing and many other sports that we're excited to talk a little bit about today. But Dr. Starr, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Thanks. Fantastic. I'm happy to hear that. I'm very excited for a conversation. The brain is obviously a very important piece of the body, but it's also something that I know very little about. So I get to ask you a bunch of questions on that today and get to understand a little bit more. And hopefully we get to educate some of the people out there. Um, Dr. Star, I'm not sure if you heard the question, but I'll ask it again. The first question for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? What a great question.
1: Thank you. Uh, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, it's just... I mean, I just love competition and pushing myself and the thrill of being able to be accomplished at something. Um, it's never a question I've ever even asked because I've always been doing every sport. I've, so I guess it's just like breathing, I guess.
0: Oh, I like that. It's just like breathing. It is for me as well. Um, if I'm not thinking or talking or watching sports, I'm probably asleep. So I do like that. I'm glad I kind of stumped you. Do You know how smart that makes me feel? Stumping a <laughs> uh, neuroscientologist, scientist. Uh, <laughs> I feel pretty good. I'm not gonna lie. I'm uh, I'm on top of the world on this one. So we can end the interview here. But I'm gonna I'm gonna plow forward. I think okay, we got some let's more plow stuff, forward. More some good stuff to come. So I guess. Got to ask, what exactly is clinical neuroscience?
1: So clinical, it means that you're working on people um, or, you know, doing something uh, like in a in a care. So, it, you know, you could be a therapist or, or mm. uh, so anything like that. And then a neuroscientist is somebody that uses the current understanding of the brain and applies that to people, to a system.
0: Mm. Okay. Can you give me an example?
1: Yes. Um, what I do. So, uh, what, like, so I use computers to help people with uh, brain problems, or to help their brain get in more flow state, peak performance state, and. Um, so that would be taking what we know from neuroscience in the last, say, 50 years of being able to analyze the brain with computers and be able to apply that to current day um, psychiatry, mental health.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And you, you bring up the last 50 years. I mean, how much information have we learned about the brain in just like the last five years? Because I feel like it's every other day there's an article talking about something new because we really don't really know that much about it, right?
1: I mean, you really have to understand that the neuroscience is what's known as a hybrid science, meaning that we couldn't get there until we had psychology, computers, statistics, you know, computers have to run fast enough. Then the neuroscience, EEG, you know, PET, MRI. I mean, so many different technologies have had to come together. And also, there's been a lot of interest in the human brain over the last decade, even 20, 30 years that I've been in the field. Whereas when I first started out, you weren't really allowed to study emotions that much. It wasn't really, you you kind of ignored it.
0: Really? That Hmm. sounds kind of stupid. It's strange,
1: but it was just something that was not understood and just believed that you were sort of foolish to look there. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. So how, what brought you into the field? What was it about the brain and trying to understand it that you were like, I want to dedicate my life's work to this?
1: Well, there was an event. I mean, there was an event, but that took a while. Uh, you know, I didn't quite exactly know when I went to medical school what I was going to do, but I had – you know, really, I needed a job as an undergrad (laughs) in work study. And I found an interesting science project connecting computers to brains. Um, You know, back, this was 90, 80, 89. And then I just sort of stayed in the neuroscience track. Mm -hmm. um, Because it was interesting to me. And I saw it as being the future um, of science and the frontier of, um, you know, psychiatry. So, then, but when I was in medical school, I I had a patient. I was I was actually gravitating towards surgery. I was thinking about being an uh, orthopedic surgeon, uh, and I was in my orthopedic my ortho uh, rotation. And I had a man who had a motorcycle accident throw bedpans at me every day, and I was able to sort of talk to him and get him to cooperate and everything like that. And I felt like the team didn't understand that he had a traumatic brain injury. And uh, I was able to communicate that. And it is sort of a moment of, uh, you know, an epiphany where I went, ah, I have a talent. I I see something here that other people don't see.
0: Yeah, it's just it's just incredible that it took us so long to realize like, hey, the brain runs all this stuff. Maybe we should, you know, pay attention to it, try and understand it as much as possible. (laughs) As you said, obviously, we needed the the technology to get there as well. But I feel like there was some stuff we could have done back in the day that would have helped a little bit, right?
1: It was forbidden. We weren't allowed to look there. Why? For many centuries. I just, well, you'd have to read Damasio. You'd have to read Antonio Damasio's Descartes error to fully understand mm-hmm. that. I can't do that justice.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, but he discusses I, uh, that quite well in that book. I'll make sure to put a link in uh, for, for the Amazon yeah. uh, footnotes for everybody yeah. down there if they want to check it out in the show notes. But yeah. it's just it's always it's always been very interesting to me. A good friend of mine uh, is he's studying psychology at Rutgers. Um, you know, he's graduating. Great school. Kind of, yeah, I went there. That's as where well. I went. Did you really? I didn't know yeah. that. Oh, yeah. I didn't do enough research. That's pretty that cool. That was my where I got my MD. Very cool. I got my undergrad there. My buddy Nick is there now, uh, going to graduate pretty soon. So um, I actually have another friend who graduated there with his MD as well. So look at that. We got a yeah. got a uh-huh. tribe going on here. This is pretty good. <laughs> but it's a, it was a fun school. Had a great time. I think that's important. But it's always just been very interesting to me hearing people talk about the brain and how important it is and and just all these little intricacies, especially as you said, over the last 10, 20 years that we're really starting to pay attention to it more. And obviously this is the for the love of sports podcast. So we'll get into the sports aspect of it with the concussions and, and, and peak performance and all of these things. But I guess kind of going back to what you do a little bit more. So there's a couple other things that I want to understand a little bit better before we dive into the sports topics a little bit. And one of them, and I, I saw in, uh, an interview with you from a couple years ago talking about brain imaging and psychiatry and the combination of the two. So Mm -hmm. I guess if you don't mind, I guess, giving us the layman's definition (laughs) of both of those and then why it's important that you were able to kind of weave those things together.
1: Uh, So it's been, you know, I think it's been a few years since I've actually really done any sort of podcasts or anything like that. And I've been working in, in, you know, on a project Um, That's now patented where we can um, take brainwaves and do uh, an analysis with artificial intelligence and come up with possible um, problems, not diagnoses, because a computer can't diagnose, only a human can diagnose, right? That's done with history, physical observation and assistance from tests. So this is essentially like a test, like a blood test, right? So it's essentially using your brainwaves to match to other people who have known disorders to be able to tell what might be the problem with one's brain. And we can match 12 different problems. What are they? Uh, memory problems, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, attention deficit disorder, sleep problems, stroke, we can actually tell where it was. Um, I'm not sure if I said traumatic brain injury, OCD, pain I'm not sure if I got
0: to 12, but it's okay, but it's understandable. And, and, and with the things that you've been listening, listing many of them just now we all know that those are real, but if you ask anybody on the internet, they have trouble sleeping. I have trouble with, you know, remember sleep.
1: There's one insomnia tinnitus. There's another one
0: tinnitus. So interesting. So Mm -hmm. like with, with all of those being legitimate, diagnosis uh, diagnoses i think that's the word i'm looking for and uh, why why do so many people think they suffer from poor sleep why do so many people like myself i just have a terrible memory like i don't know why i just always have and i've gotten yelled at it many times and i'm going to continue and that's just kind of what it is why like why are some of these things why do they feel like they're so common to just i guess normal people when in reality i'm sure there's like another level that you're looking for these problems at
1: correct the first thing I'll I'll say is, you can completely change your memory. I mean, really? I, you know, you can you you can do that, and then have me back on and okay, I'll, I'll show you. That I mean, cool. that's changeable. There's Such a thing as neuroplasticity, the brain changes, and you're a young guy,
0: I mean, twenty nine, you know, probably
1: in a couple days. Yeah, yeah, that's an exception. I mean, people change. I see people actually. I see people into their one hundreds change their brain but certainly age helps. Yes. Um, So uh, sleep. Well, look, that's a multifactorial problem. It could be any number of issues. It's so hard to determine. Mm -hmm. If you ask me, why can't you sleep? I don't know. Mm -hmm. You have to do a good analysis of a person's sleep habits and sleep diary, but getting a brain scan Can certainly go a long way because if there's a traumatic brain injury and the brain, say, doesn't make enough delta waves in a specific area, if there's any neuroscientists listening and I'm saying this off the cuff correct, you know, and I get it wrong, sorry, um, I believe it's the um, inferior colliculus that produces the sleep waves, the delta waves, and if that area is um, injured and uh, a person can't produce the proper delta waves to maintain or initiate sleep. I mean, there's a a prime example of a traumatic brain injury that someone might have even sustained. They didn't know it. You know, if if you ever, you know, and I have, I mean, I used to play some soccer and I've definitely used my head on the ball. I mean, now studies show that even doing that one time can cause a traumatic brain injury. I mean, it's traveling 70 miles an hour. There was not a physicist and a neuroscientist doing the, you know, Anthropo- anthropomorphic studies of, you know, what the tolerances of the human skull are, and uh, soccer ball momentum traveling through the air—it wasn't done
0: <laughs> until now. It was hey,
1: hit the ball with your head,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right?
1: So, you know, that's that's just one example, but it could be narcolepsy. I've seen that in an AEG before. Um, that's destruction of specific neurons that um, produce the neurotransmitters orexin for sleep. Um, so there's, there, you know, it's, could be so many different reasons. And that's why I always say everyone with a complaint that has to do with their brain deserves a brain scan.
0: And you said I can get better at memory because that's my, complaint. easy. Yeah. So I don't even need the brain scan. It sounds like it sounds like you could just, no, you need it. a brain scan. Oh, you okay. need
1: neuro- okay. neurofeedback. I mean, um, no, you, you would get a brain scan. You would see, I would suspect you have a traumatic brain injury and your brain was shaken, not stirred. And uh, what happens is when, you know, it's really a common memory. Uh, I hope I'm not getting too far afield of your question, but no. memory is actually one of the most common complaints that I see in traumatic brain injury. Reason being, um, do I have a brain somewhere? Yeah, I do. This wasn't planned. It just happens to be here. I just have yeah, brains lying around everywhere.
0: That's why and, we do a live. You know. Oh, this is perfect. So, so
1: actually, you, you know uh, anything about knee injuries? Uh no. In sports, I but do. I've right. had two. I I'm a personal. You know, I know a bit mm-hmm. uh, from skiing. Uh, I've mm-hmm. had two ACL surgeries, and oh, no. the, you know it's really common to mm-hmm. do your ACL right because of a twisting shearing force, and it does mm-hmm. a specific motion. The same thing is happening in the brain and the skull in a traumatic brain injury. The brain is coming up out of these pockets that it sits in, and the temporal lobes that are responsible for declarative memory that sit on the outsides. Your brain doesn't think it's very important. That's why i put it on the outside, mm-hmm. right? Sh- runs over the skull as it, the brain shakes and moves, right? And then sits back in the pocket. It's called a subluxation. And if you were talking about a knee joint and that's where you can see delta waves, ex- excessive delta waves in the temporal lobes, and then a person's memory would be affected. They would, it, the brain doesn't keep up with the memory areas doesn't keep up with the rest of the brain, so the brain just says, "I don't need you. I'll just mm-hmm. ignore you guys." And that would be my suspicion if we were to do your brain scan.
0: Interesting. Why does like the evolution of the brain? Uh, maybe you know a little bit more than I do. Like, why why would they put memory and sleep, two things that seem extremely extremely important? No, 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 no. Okay, sleeps back. in the center. Sleeps in the center. Okay. Memories on the outside. Memories on the outside. I still think memory is pretty important, right? So Eh, why why is it on the outside?
1: Well, I said declarative memory. I mean, remembering words and numbers. Like, it's not that important to remember the name of a pair of scissors or sunglasses. You just need to know to take them and put them on your head, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know what I mean? It's not like you said yourself. It's just you can say, what do you call? Or if he was speaking Spanish, you'd say, Baina, you know the kind in hawaiian doesn't matter everybody's got a word for it Mm -hmm. so uh but no sleep is central socialization is central that's in the medial corridor Mm -hmm. but you know things like uh, right you know motor riding a bicycle all these other you know kind of fun things that humans do are Mm -hmm. more on the outside emotional memory is towards the center
0: Mm -hmm. so that's something we need some pretty good <laughs> yeah artwork. so
1: you you can if, if it's if if you were threatened by something that you remembered being threatened by before mm. you would not forget mm. right that's a different kind of memory that's a sense memory
0: mm.
1: Love it. or kinesthetic memory you can learn sports you can learn movements right that's kinesthetic so there's different many many different channels to memory mm-hmm. damn
0: that's really interesting I'm loving this already what is oh wait, I don't think we actually even I don't think we figured out uh, the psychiatry part of it. Well,
1: um, I don't think yeah, we made it that
0: far into the question. I, I think we. I don't. About the brain. I
1: stopped calling myself that a few years ago.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Well, many years that ago. That I mean, I do. I do just because people understand it. But mm-hmm. I refer to myself as a neuropractor. A neuropractor is a, um, an individual that works on the central nervous system using computer methods. So okay. that's really essentially what I do. Like a chiropractor. Very similar, but we don't on the spine. So I would say Cairo is still one of the branches that's working on the central nervous system, similar to neuropractic. It's just that we're on the brain and they're on the spinal cord. Super interesting.
0: And then the last one before we dive into the sports aspect a little bit more. What is neurofeedback training?
1: Neurofeedback training is it has many names. The formal name is EEG or electroencephalogram which are the brain waves mm-hmm. operant conditioning
0: mm.
1: okay it's a learning technique by which the brain can be taught something new through the electrical waves rather than through doing something not quite like in the matrix when you know neo like yeah. trinity's like i need the helicopter you know not quite but Maybe in a hundred years. That's pretty cool.
0: I mean, we have what Elon Musk is doing his Neuralink link uh, thing now. Are you going to be able to, is that is when we can get the helicopter?
1: Well, I, no. you know, it's going to be on Mars, so it doesn't okay. matter. Anyway, That's true. Gonna, I'm not not, know, sure. well, We won't be privy to us. Earthlings won't be privy to it. I'm not, I'm not going. Doesn't sound like. Yeah, let's not go there. <laughs> not go there. Um, uh, I so. think it's amazing technology. Incredible. Yeah. It but it's, you know not neurofeedback. That's what I have Ah, to say. All right. Yeah. Well, and let, let me specify that, you know, this is something that is a new emergent technology and I like it because it's bringing a lot of attention to what we do, but what we do is external. We don't, we're not going internal. We're not putting anything into the skull, any energy or anything. It's feedback. In other words, the, the computer, the cap that people wear on their head. And I think I have one hanging here because I use them a lot. Oh, you can't see it in the frame. I see.
0: Yeah. By the way, keep going. That
1: there guy. you go. Yeah, that cap right there. Very cool. This guy. So you wear that cap, and it reads your brain waves, and um, the computer is monitoring them on a millisecond to millisecond basis, and by giving the person feedback through sound or some movie or some flashing on the screen. The brainwaves are being changed or shaped subconsciously to work in a more optimal fashion, work better.
0: Mm-hmm. And this is more to fix or correct or make somebody better at something? All of the above. Okay. So these these powers seem like they can be used for good and for evil, though. Yeah.
1: That's true with everything. I think dual-use technology, the Internet. The Internet. Yeah. You know, as an example, cars. Mm-hmm. It's another example, everything has dual use, yeah, um, you know, I think that right now the field is so in in its infancy that people really are just trying to use this for you know helping people.
0: I like that. Let's try and keep it like that for as long as possible. Dr. Starr, we're gonna lean on you for that. so I guess how how does showing this movie or playing this sound how does this change correct or improve upon something specific and and how do you know what exactly you're trying to hit on it sounds like this is like very 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 high level stuff
1: yeah that's you know that's a lot in the in knowing how to do it that's why you want to go to somebody like myself who's done this for 20 years Mm -hmm. straight um because yeah um you have to really know the, the pathways in the brain and where you're going and what you're trying to do mm-hmm. uh, so what might work for one person might have an opposite effect on another person
0: oh goodness so is this a lot of like trial like I feel like trial and error is probably not the best thing to do with the brain so like how how do you figure out which path to take for that specific person
1: well that's one reason we use the artificial intelligence because I have an outcome mm-hmm. uh, of 20,000 people measuring their outcome over, you know, quite a few years. And also, um, you look at, you know, the brainwaves of the individual mm-hmm. and then somebody like me or an expert, you know, somebody on the same level as me would determine what's out of balance. It's really something you can see.
0: Mm-hmm. That's super interesting i got i guess i have to ask that first person i know you can't give us uh their name but like that first person how excited were you to like just start trying this and how excited were they to be like yeah sure use me as your guinea pig well i was the first person oh you did it you could do this to yourself i did it on
1: myself that was i was the first person yeah that's pretty cool okay uh that was in uh i had add okay yeah my whole life um when I was young, I was diagnosed with that. I was like, you know, one of the early kids to mm-hmm. get that. Um, and uh, so I decided that I was going to correct my ADD. If this worked, then it would work. So I documented it fairly well with the proper testing and the EEG and everything. And I did it. And I my testing, what's called a continuous performance test, which is a test of attention that it's not answering questions. It's how you perform. Mm -hmm. My score jumped, I think 40 points or something, which was like four standard deviations. And I showed my friend who was also a psychiatrist at the time. And I was more traditional psychiatrist at the time as well. And uh, he just thought I was crazy, ignored it. And I knew my, I, at that point I felt like the field wasn't ready Mm -hmm. for it. Uh, But then um, my second patient was my daughter who passed away in two thousand eight, from epilepsy, um, while she was doing this, I mean, nothing would have saved her life ultimately, but you know, while she was doing this, it helped. And then my third patient was a very sick child who was adopted from Russia. He was on five very strong psych meds. He was in his—he was about seven years old. He wasn't able to be in school, and that particular case, he stopped his medicine. And was mainstreamed in school. I still get follow-up notes from time to time from the parents too. And that was about 15 years ago.
0: My goodness. Yeah. And so with this, how, like how much do you have to personally continue for yourself? I feel like this isn't a one and done thing. Is it something that you have to continue to check up on? Is there a, once we hit a certain point, we're pretty much good to go. Like how, how does that aspect of it work?
1: And you know, that's stuff I've worked out over many years in my own practice of this. Um, so I have found that people, um, and it's just started to rain here. Are you getting feedback? Can you hear the rain at all?
0: No, but it's Hawaiian rain. So I'm not angry. about okay. it. Okay. Costa Rican. Costa Rican. I apologize. Island rain. There we go. Even better.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So, um, one moment. So, uh, what I was saying is, um, let's reorient me to where we were at.
0: Oh, uh, we were talking about how, like, how much is there a follow-up needed to continue Uh, to get better or or something of those? Yeah.
1: Generally, average people need about 40 hours of treatment, 20 to 40 hours of treatment. I mean, generally, that is what people are happy and they feel satisfied with where they have significant, say, sleep uh, improvement or significant memory improvement, Right. But everybody's different and I don't know where they're going to end up. So some people want to go and do peak performance training. They want to get smarter. They want to do, you know, feel like they want to improve their attention. So you can keep going with this. It can be excessive, I think.
0: But definitely there is kind of, there's that threshold. And once it sounds like once you cross that threshold, you're significantly better off. So that sounds fun. Maybe I'm gonna to come to Costa Rica. We can we can use I'll be the matrix. How's that sound? You can make me Neo. I think that would be kind of cool. Well, we do oh, it remotely. Oh, even better. I'm a backyaner fan.
1: Yeah, we we do this through the internet.
0: Gotta love the internet. As you said, for powers, good and bad. We've been on Twitter <laughs> before, so we know the bad. Um we know the good as well. So With that, uh, I'm very grateful and thank you again for answering some of my what may have been um, very rudimentary questions, but it's all very, very interesting to me. So I appreciate you answering them. And I guess kind of shifting the conversation a little bit into the athlete space. Now, as you said, the brain has been getting, uh, for better or for worse, a lot more attention, um, especially in sports the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, considerably with peak performance and, and kind of making sure that we're, you know, mind, body, soul, emotions are all connected. I think that part's very important, but then also the negative, which is concussions. Um, so I will let you have dealer's choice. Which one would you rather talk about first? Peak performance. Peak performance. We'll start with the positives. I like that. So with peak performance, how how have you seen, you know, you were talking about it. how you can help improve people in general, but specifically on the athlete front, understanding that peak performance for a major league baseball player trying to hit a 99 mile an hour fastball painted on the black is a little different than you or I just trying to, you know, me getting better at talking into a microphone or, or you, you know, kind of having fun surfing such things. So how, when you work with or or speak with athletes, how do you explain to them? You know, they, they know their bodies best, right? But I've, feel like they don't really know their brains that well and as you said before emotions tie very very deeply into what you need to do and and how you need to do it how do you speak to athletes on this front to help them understand how you can help get them to that peak performance on a more um regular basis
1: so the brain is what's controlling everything in the body i mean Mm -hmm. the brain is not just where you think, or where you remember things. It's also taking all of the sense information up and sending all of the information down, right? It's also the master gland of the body. People neglect that fact. So really, the brain is the timekeeper of the body. And to have your body enter into that flow state at will, and to be able to maximize all of, say, The firing in the sensory motor cortex for your legs and being able to actually link those two things in the performance of the sport can greatly maximize performance. I see everyone from um, equestrians, golfers, football players, tennis players, surfers, obviously watermen. Um, Yeah, I mean, the gambit. Um, and for peak performance, I mean, it, it, it's really coming down to flow Mm -hmm. because they're performers already, right. And their bodies are already presumably in top performance. So all you're doing is assisting in timing, uh, the way I see the brain actually, and this is my own personal view of what the brain is after looking at it for 30 years of my life, it's a clock. That's it. It's just Just, keeping time.
0: Just keeping time
1: ticking away. It's keeping time between the external environment, the internal environment, trying to balance those two things as best it can with what it has. Mm -hmm. So right now I can sit here and feel very relaxed and speak to you and be attentive because my brain is allowing me to be relaxed and balanced in the space. But if I were someone who were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder or something, maybe I would be hyper alert or hyper vigilant and my body wouldn't be able to be in the time space, even though there's no threat. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's the same with athletic performance, but the time space is getting into that particular performance zone at that particular time. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I will say that many people, athletes included, approach us for peak performance. And that's not exactly what they need.
0: Like. turns out they need better sleep, better. Great example. Mm -hmm.
1: Great example. Or they have anger problems Mm. and they have a traumatic brain injury or there's some substance use issue or Mm. there's there's often other things that people first come in and peak performance to me says, "Eh, okay, let's see where that performance is before we get to peak.
0: Mm -hmm. So really you're going to try and help them first with some of these underlying issues that they might not or may realize they don't do or do not have. And we have to kind of get past those hurdles first before we can even really get to peak performance. It sounds like.
1: It's all in the brain. It's, it's, it's location and function, right? So if you localized, you see where it is, you know what that does. And that one area might have a lot to do with many, many things. And so by balancing and training that particular area, they won't just get better at sports, but their lives will get better.
0: Mm -hmm. And that usually then kind of has a hamster wheel effect of if their lives are getting better, their sports will then continue to get better as well. Less stress less adrenaline, right? Kind of something along those lines.
1: Well, I mean, I have a very high peak performer person right now. I have a few, one one in particular training with us right now who uh, said to me, finally, you know what? And these are the skeptical people, skeptical mm-hmm. people. My wife said I'm less angry. <laughs> Could it be this?
0: <laughs> I think so.
1: I didn't say anything there. She doesn't even know I'm doing it.
0: Hmm. Yes. <laughs> I like that. Is this <laughs> most definitely, is this particular person in the World Series by any chance? No, no, okay, no, no, no. Cool. no, no. Thought I should ask because mm. I'm a big baseball fan. So I was just no, curious. No. But okay. I think it's just really interesting peak performance, especially in athletes, and understanding that the, the added layer is the better they perform, they get paid a significant, significant amount more money which I'm assuming then adds the stress on top of it, right? Like we see guys that are coming into the league and they're kind of free swinging and they're just kind of relaxed because, Hey, it's whatever. Like I'm here, I made it finally. And then you see those guys in that contract year, potentially they tighten up or, or particularly, you know, I'm kind of curious as we were talking about the world series with higher stakes, you know, in the world series, right? Like seeing people shrivel up, tense up, not be as good, um, in these types of situations, is this another thing that you could potentially help with? Um, understanding that yes, there is that peak performance aspect, but then there's just the not be getting small in big situation aspects too. What do you tie that? Is there a particular chemical in the brain that does that? Is that a stress level thing? Like where 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 does that factor into what you do?
1: So, are you t- you're talking about performance anxiety? Yeah,
0: like in the biggest situations, you kind of. No. Think- I mean, we, that's, that's actually
1: not uncommon. That's mm-hmm. not an uncommon complaint. Um, and also amongst uh, actors mm-hmm. um, as well. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's post-traumatic stress disorder. I think they're traumatized. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, if there is a traumatic brain injury, their brain can't process the trauma properly. So it's going in a repetitive loop. So they don't know what's wrong. Why do I work sometimes? Why don't I work sometimes? Very frustrating. And as far as the uh, investment is concerned, um, it's not just the individual athlete. It's also the organizations that are supporting the athlete because that's, you know, I mean, I have an uh, an anecdote of many years ago of training with a uh, doing neuro, a brain scan on a top draft pick NFL. Um, And uh, the psychiatrist diagnosed the NFL player with bipolar and this was way back this is pre-2010 and um I did a brain scan it was clearly a traumatic brain injury and they're like we have to tell everybody we have to you know this medicine and I said just no 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 wait do 20 sessions just wait 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 and we did I think we did about 40 but this person went on to have a successful career
0: that's really interesting Mm -hmm. So it's by understanding the brain and seeing and really under, you know, over the 30 years that you've had kind of looking at it and understanding it, you can then help them fix some of these things.
1: Yes. And also let me specify, I wasn't saying anything pejorative about the diagnosis of bipolar. Uh, And also this was several years ago. I mean, this is now 15 years ago when people didn't consider there wasn't those movies. There wasn't the movie concussion. There wasn't, it wasn't around. It wasn't in our vernacular or our understanding that neuroplasticity is a real concept that brains do change that you can have thickening of neurons, uh, you know, in, in gray matter, thinning of, of gray matter. So things have changed a lot since then.
0: Yes. So let's move the discussion there. What is gray matter? I don't know. No, I'm kidding. Uh-huh. Uh, gray matter, you know,
1: your, your, your brain is a collection of cells called neurons and the neurons have, um, a, all cells have a nucleus, right? A, a part where kind of the DNA operations go on, the cellular operations go on. And then neurons are special in that they have this very long kind of stalk attached to them. That then, that's where the nerve conduction kind of goes through. Called an, it's called an axon. Okay. Um, it's like a telephone cable. And that's what it sends its messages to the next one. So gray matter is where the cells are. White matter is where the telephone wires are. Okay. White matter is, is made of a protein called myelin. Um, I've heard of that word. Right, and that's you know it's covered. It's a, in a sheath. The nerves mm-hmm. are in a sheath, and so um, that's where uh, the difference between the white and the gray is. Mm-hmm and you can lose both either you can lose white matter you can lose gray matter they're both have different manifestations they both mm-hmm. come out differently
0: okay and so when somebody gets a concussion so you were explaining it before it was the subluxation so it's coming out it's moving it's kind of hitting against the 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 skull um, and ruining our memory even though i like <laughs> my memory we're uh, we're ruining it a little bit what um so i guess like function wise obviously we've seen how concussions affect certain people in different ways we've seen some people you know specifically with the nfl we've seen you know offensive and defensive linemen they kind of just they never get those bad concussions but if they're just ramming their heads against each other for you know 60 to 70 plays a game it's it's going to do some damage and then there's those obvious ones where you see somebody come over the middle you see them go completely limp mid-air and then kind of like shock themselves back back uh, awake like what exactly is happening in both of those situations? Let's start with the the big devastating ones a little bit more, like kind of where somebody goes unconscious for that split second. What mm. is that doing to the brain?
1: Well, I mean, there and you're asking a, a question that I ponder.
0: Hmm. Let's ponder uh, yeah. it together.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where you go. <laughs> I don't know what happens. And I've asked some pretty smart people, the same question. And when they go, I never really thought about that. Like, are you, you yeah. Okay. I know what everybody can tell me, you know, I, massive depolarization, Da da I understand, but it really get, brings up questions about what the brain really is. And some of the people studying the underlying function of um, the human brain, like um, there's a Dr. Hammerhoff who talks about, specific vibrations in microtubules that you know, may allow us to have a, trans, a transmission-receiving basis of the brain. So there's a lot of underpinnings of the brain that I'm not going to pretend I understand because I don't. I don't know where consciousness is coming from. But when the brain is hit mechanically, you can more or less tell what the behavioral consequences are going to be. So in other words, if, you, if I look at tracings going across the screen, right, mm-hmm. I'm a little like, um, you know, like, oh, you know, you just see the I see the woman in the red dress kind of, you know, I can go like, oh, did you get hit here? Right. Because I can I can see what that tracing looks like. Now, I have to put it through a computer to really see it in three dimensions and fully see it. Mm-hmm. But I've looked at enough to be able to actually see the raw tracing. So if a person is hit, you know, uh, let's say, let's give them a, let's give them a, a right. Oh, I think I'm mirror. I have mirror camera. So, but this is my right yeah. side. Yeah, this is my. but let's side. give it. Okay. Let's give them a right frontal. So let's say they hit their right front. And so that area goes into like, um, Delta waves, goes into slow waves. Doesn't die. It's not necrotic. Mm-hmm. It's still there, right? You don't have to get it taken out of your head. It's not dead tissue. It's just shocked. Mm-hmm. So that tissue s- sort of goes to sleep or goes into a dreamlike state. The brain doesn't like that because it's a clock. And if the timing and all the systems don't work properly, it goes, I'm not going to use you. I don't need you. Well, let's say this area is for keeping your self control. So I had a client who kept getting himself into trouble because he couldn't keep his mouth shut in front of women because he had some frontal release, it's called. I believe it's called that. And so uh, you can have visual problems if you get struck in the back. right? So I just described a very common injury pattern, which is a coup contre coup where it hits on the coup, right? It hits one side. Mm -hmm. All of the fluid that the brain is encased in sloshes around like a wave, pushes the brain to the opposite side and smashes it against the skull where there's no fluid on that side now. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it comes out and subluxes, right? So the temporal lobes go, and then it shears and it moves like this on the the stalk because it's on a little stalk in a bunch of fluid. Mm -hmm. And so all the little tissue-like connections, the gap, Junctions, these very, very delicate connections get sheared. And you could have a visual deficit on this side. It's very common. You know, if you have that mechanism of injury, this side, because this controls vision, you would have social issues because the area in the front, social attention, social processing on the right was hit. And you might have memory problems because the temporal lobes went like this. Mm -hmm. And you can see it on a QEEG and it's fairly consistent pattern that person would also have trouble sleeping and they might not even know they got hit in the head. They might not even remember. They might not know what the problem is. And their main complaint is
0: sleep. And that's where you come in. Yeah, That's incredible. Concussions are so very confusing. And it's just
1: like, so like what I did want to say something before it does slip my mind, a distinction. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people are making are conflating, which means they're putting together The idea of chronic traumatic encephalopathy and traumatic brain injury, these are two very different things. Okay. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy is a long-term condition that happens after multiple, multiple injuries in which there are calcifications and long-term changes in the brain and really should be, you know, it's diagnosed by autopsy.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. That's dangerous. Yeah.
1: I mean that was the study that was done with the nfl players who were 110 of them that showed to have i believe it's like 109 or something yeah it was something like that or 19 yeah it was like 99 um so but a traumatic brain injury is different that's Mm -hmm. not where you have this long-term permanent potentially permanent damage to your brain
0: okay so i was gonna ask about cte next Mm -hmm. so like where so you can let's let's connect some of these dots you can get a concussions and, and kind of having that repeated hitting your head over and over and over again, that's where you're going to most likely get the CTE. It's not directly from these gigantic concussions. It, that's more yeah. the trauma.
1: Yes. And again, CTE is not my specific sub area of expertise, but I guess I know a little bit more than about it. A little more than, than me.
0: Yeah. A little more in than general, me.
1: but so I'll just, you know, preface it with that. Uh, you know, I, I, from what I understand in the literature, there is a um, connection between specific genes that people might have mm-hmm. and the development of CTE. There's also might be some specific immune reactions that are triggered in, spe- in, in, in regards to CTE. So it's a very complex process. Yeah. It's a complex process. And, and we're just starting to really fully grasp that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Uh, I think that maybe there is a spectrum or a continuum of traumatic brain injury, mild concussion to CTE,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Uh, just like there is a continuum in Alzheimer's from mild to severe. Now, can neurofeedback help people who have C who suspect, you know, CTE or severe concussions? Yeah, mm-hmm. they, they can gain some function. But again, you can't instill false hope. You know, you have to always give a good understanding of what the expectations are. Mm
0: -hmm. And that, that was going to be my next question. Understanding like where, where do you come in, in this process? Obviously the sooner, the better it sounds like, I mean, just like a normal person could utilize, you know, your skills and, and your, your, um, your, your work, your, your life's work, but with somebody, you know, again, such as some of these athletes that are coming in and, and you, you know, you're speaking with, with, how, as you were talking about before, the, the, the part of the brain doesn't die. It just kind of goes to sleep a little bit and the brain doesn't want to use it. How do you then help the brain turn that part back on to get them to come back to where, you know, they were before, which is your brain is working kind of the way it was intended to work?
1: Well, so with neurofeedback. Mm mm-hmm. In the, in the in the example i gave us before let's yep. say in and let's just talk about that frontal area where there's delta waves the brain is making too much delta it's not making enough of the other brain waves to be awake alpha and beta so you could j- just simply put one sensor just one com- one eeg reader reading sensor right here and connect that to a computer and instruct the computer to play a sound in the person's ears every time the delta went a little down and the alpha and beta went a little up because understand neurofeedback is riding waves i don't just surf brain waves i don't just surf ocean mm-hmm. waves i surf brain waves and so with this um, technique you can just the brain will start to correct itself it has a self-correcting mechanism where it wants to work and it's lazy it wants to work in the most efficient way possible and if it's not working the way it was intended to it wants to be shown how it just doesn't it gives up trying to restart that area so what you can do is hook it up to the other parts of the brain through the computer you're now giving the information to the eyes and the ears right by flashing a light and giving a sound or flashing you know playing a movie that turns off and on Mm -hmm. with response to this delta waves going up and down sometimes the waves are very high sometimes they're very low if you just set the computer to notice when they start to dip down just by chance randomly Mm -hmm. they're going up and down because they're waves when they go down it will trigger the sound and the rest of the brain goes oh hey that felt good what did i just do there and we'll try to figure out how to do it again and so it'll and then delta will go down again so it's like um. Are you Have you ever heard of a Skinner box? No. So B.F. Skinner is uh, sort of the current person we recognize as the grandfather of operant conditioning, which is this, which is when you see like um, a pigeon in pecking levers in some combination Mm -hmm. to get a food palette, and then they change the combination a little bit and has to learn the new combination because it just starts randomly, randomly pecking, Mm -hmm. and then it learns – that's operant conditioning. So you're teaching something, uh, you're teaching an organism a new thing.
0: Is Pavlov's dog? Are
1: you Pavlov? No, exactly, no. Not. exactly. not. So Pavlov, classical conditioning, and people say that all the oh, time. That's okay. exactly what they say. Okay. So, so Pavlov was classical, which means that the dog was already sal- salivating, right? Mm-hmm. The dog was already salivating when Pavlov, uh, Pavlov would mm-hmm. ring the bell, give them food, and they salivated. So all he did was tie salivation to a bell. There was nothing new. Yeah. Right. So operant conditioning is you're learning a new thing.
0: Okay. All right. And that's where the pigeons, they learn how to do the thing and then they can get the food. Right.
1: And in this case, it's your brain pecking around to try to figure out how to make a movie play because it's annoying to see a movie going off and on.
0: Interesting. My goodness. Dr. Star, you're incredible. Did you know that? Has anyone told you that yet today? Maybe my wife and kids. Yeah, I think so. Hopefully. Hopefully they did. not, I'm, I'm happy to be the first. Um, but Thank you. That is amazing. Um, really? Gosh darn. That is really darn cool. And I guess, um, last question. What can somebody like me or anybody out there listening or watching, what's, what's something we could just do every day to Get our brain to be a little bit better. Something easy. Something I can kind of wake up. It only takes a couple minutes, maybe. Something that you do on a daily basis that I don't know if it's gonna do anything hyper-specific, but it'll just make me better over time.
1: I am so glad I get to answer this. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. Anapana meditation. Anapana meditation. Anapanasti. Ana is in breath is out breath. It is the passive observation of the breath as it passes in and out of the nostrils. 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes at night. Breathe in. Eyes closed. Sit comfortably. Back and neck straight. Focus your entire attention on the area at the entrance to the nostrils. And what's that going to do? Like neurologically or uh, behaviorally?
0: Well, it's going to calm me down. That just sounds wonderful. But yeah, long-term
1: meditators change their brains. They see thickening of the hippocampus, which is the memory areas. They see increase in the thickening in the corpus callosum, um, and I believe general increase in overall white matter. Uh, This is this was actually a group of out of Harvard uh, people that had never meditated adults that had never meditated before did a meditation program. Very similar to this, it was Jon Kabat-Zinn, sort of a variation of John Kabat-Zinn's um, mindfulness-based stress reduction. And um, after 30, uh, I don't know, eight weeks, I think it was, they did repeat MRIs and they saw these changes. And what-, what The Harvard, uh, I believe it's the Harvard Meditation Study.
0: But what, so those changes to the brain, what are they going to then affect? I guess that's the behavioral aspect of the question, right?
1: Increase your memory. Make you more calm, Mm -hmm. make you more adaptable and flexible to change, improve your attention and concentration, make you a better all human being, improve your, increase your compassion for yourself and others, improve your sleep. Delightful.
0: That sounds absolutely. And you know how crazy all people have to do is do that for like 20 minutes in a day? And I mean, how many people are actually going to do it, right?
1: Well, I think that there's a big rumor, um, I, and I think that about meditation and the way it's been taught, at least it was to me when I started doing it in my 20s. And I, I, you know, I don't know why, but it seems to be like about relaxing, and it's not about relaxing. It's about sitting with what is, whether it be relaxed or not relaxed, and being okay with that, but focusing on your breath the entire time. As, the, as they say in Pali, you know, it's a Nietzsche, it's change. It's being okay with everything that arises and passes.
0: That sounds wonderful. I can't wait. I do it every night. I do that every night, but it sounds Good. like I should do that every morning and every night.
1: Yeah, every morning, every night, at least 10 minutes.
0: At least 10 minutes. And mm-hmm. what's that going to do to my brainwaves?
1: When you're doing it, it puts your brain in actually a really interesting pattern. I've done a lot of, I've done some of my own studies independently on different meditators. Um, and, um, you know, different meditation techniques have different patterns on the brain, whether you meditate with your eyes open, eyes closed, whether you do transcendental meditation, whether you do Vipassana meditation. Um, and, you know, in particular the meditation I'm talking about is the kindergarten. They call it the kindergarten of Vipassana. It's the basic technique before you learn Vipassana meditation. And, um, that, um, it does it's actually interesting. It, you see your brain slowing down speeding up at the same time. It's kind of like a dream like awareness.
0: That sounds like fun. See a lot of
1: activity in an area called the default mode network um, which is kind of really in the vernacular I think right now. Mm-hmm. A lot of people like to talk about the DMN.
0: I love it. Well, I can't wait. I guess I have to start tomorrow because it's already past the morning today, but I'll still get mine in tonight too. So I'll let you know how it goes. How's that sound? Okay. Yes. Perfect. Dr. Star, where can everyone find you on the internet in case they want to ask you questions or start utilizing some of these services that you have?
1: So we're at Minerva.com, which is spelled M Y N E U R V A. It's like Minerva, but it's Mm Minerva and, uh, or um, they can email us at, Uh, contact at minerva.com again that's m-y-n-e-u-r-v-a
0: i will make sure that all is in the show notes for anybody that's interested can click a button shoot dr star an email but dr star this has been absolutely fantastic thank you for answering all my questions uh i really appreciate it and tying it back to sports and athletics i think that's obviously part of the show but i was going to ask you questions no matter what whether sports were tied in at all so really do appreciate your time today
1: Thanks very much. I appreciate it, too. I had a lot of fun.
0: Perfect. Thanks, everybody.